please please sign up on the attendance sheet if you can. Who, who wants to start? Let's go around the room with names. We're just playing. We don't have to do that. But we could. How's everyone doing? What are you all doing here? Bring you. <laughs> do you guys want me to start? Sure. Bring. Okay, what are you all here for? Learning. To learn. Why do you like being here? We like looking at you. I am, I am trying. Presumptuous questions. I am trying to make my looks better for everyone. That way, nobody has to suffer. Oh. <laughs> now we look forward well, to your teaching. Yeah. That's good. Your depth of knowledge. Well, let us begin with the word of prayer, and we'll get started. Lord, thank you for everyone here. Thank you for time to get to be together as a church and to be here during this 45 minutes to study your word together. Help us to honor you and to honor your son, Jesus Christ, and to live lives that reflect you well. Help us to understand the importance of this for our reward future in heaven, for your joy, for our joy now and later and for others. The purpose is ultimately to bear fruit so that others might take the fruit that is coming off of us and be filled and be encouraged to be better imitators of you as well. Lord, help us to do this better together as a covenant community that recognizes you as covenant Lord who's granted us grace in Jesus Christ as Paul has described for us most beautifully in the beginning of Romans. Amen. Amen. So, we have two verses that we want to cover down on, just command after command. I want to try to put them together well. But we're finishing up from last week. I want to skip to the end of my lesson just right now and hit it at the beginning. How's that sound? <laughs> okay, so what this all ultimately boils down to, and all these commands here we see in Romans, is to establish a more disciplined, <coughs> hardworking, obedient Christian life. It's super spiritual, I know, and it's really difficult to figure out. Right? This is very difficult stuff. It's not difficult to grasp. It's difficult to do, right? Uh, the commands and the language is very simple. The ideas seem obvious to us. Who could go wrong with understanding uh, what's implied? But the key is to persevere in all of these things and to get after it more and more and more. So, <clears throat> what it boils down to is 
I don't remember if I heard this quote from MacArthur, but it came to me when I was writing here in a sermon this week, or if he was quoting somebody else. But if you don't control your life, if you don't control your life, everyone and everything else will. Okay? So I mean, that, that's a principle I want you to take to understand all these commands in Scripture. For you to obey and do what Paul is telling you to do as a Christian you're going to have to take charge and start to reign in your life and have some control. You're going to have to put your life into order. And let's just start back with how Paul opened up this section. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, I'm urging you guys, I'm urging you, by the mercies of God, okay, by the beauty of God's mercy and grace in the gospel through Jesus Christ, dying for your sins giving you eternal life and giving you the wonderful gift of the Spirit and a new heart, present your bodies to Him as a living sacrifice, which is acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Don't be conformed to this world, essentially saying any longer. Actively present your body to God as a sacrifice. Okay? And like I said, that... that that idea of presenting is daily being about it. And then Paul gives us a, a material list. Well, first he goes into the church, that everyone in the church is gifted by God with special gifts, and that we need one another. And so he's establishing that the context of living a sacrificial and holy life is in the context of a local church. It's not in a monk's tower in medieval England. They went way wrong on that. The super spiritual life is not lived out monastically by yourself. Actually, that's a, a sign of selfish, vain pride that you can't handle being around other people to be spiritual. The context of being the most spiritual is being able to be sacrificial and deal with the pains and blows of living amongst the church, which is the model that Jesus gave us, who's the most spiritual man. Jesus came, lived with sinners, and dealt with them constantly. Lived among them, walked with them, <laughs> fed them when they didn't understand things. Still cared for them, poured out his life for them, prayed for them, loved them, corrected them, admonished them, taught them, served them. It's a disciplined life. If you want the greatest model of a disciplined Christian life, um, Christian means little Christ, imitator of Christ. But if we don't control our life, everyone and everything else will, or something else will. So, Admiral McRaven, uh, a SEAL admiral, gave an address to the Annapolis Naval Academy a while back, and he said, guys, if you want to be successful officers, clean your room. Clean your room. Make your bed every day. It did start with make your bed. The room is one step further than that. But <clears throat> he said, because there's going to be days that you fail, and you need to have one stable thing in your life that you do every day that you are having success at. And upon that success, you build further and further steps of success and discipline. And so when you start with one small task, you go outward. Now, how many of you think that the Bible doesn't say anything like that at all? 
Or where would the Bible say, make your bed? Well, let me tell you how minute the Apostle Paul does give a command to Christians. Whatever you do, whether you were eating or drinking, off of plates, food, do it for the Lord. Do it unto the Lord. And that means do it well. When you eat, eat as if you're eating with the Lord and eating well. So ladies, men, when you're making food in your pots and pans at home, who are you doing it for? For the Lord. And when you're eating off those plates, and when you're having people over, you're doing it for the Lord. There's nothing more steady in your life that you will do besides get up, go to bed, wake up, clean your house, and make food. That is the most, I would call it mundane, but it's not mundane, but it's routine. The most routine things we do in life is probably eat food. Yes? How many people love fasting for like three, four, five days straight? No, I don't think anybody has that <clears throat> routine in their life. But anyway, make your bed, clean your room, and then go bigger. Clean your house, and then go bigger than that. Clean your garage too. Go to bed and get up on time. This is why none of you have had me over yet, I know. I'm just, I'm just kidding. We'll that, that was a joke. Some people, so as soon as we invite okay. you over, you know where a garage is. So I had to throw some, some what people think is spiritual things in there. But like I said, all these things are spiritual, actually. God says, as a Christian, everything you say and do is supposed to be a spiritual service to him. Okay? And when Mary and Martha were making food for Jesus, and one wanted to listen and the other one wanted to make food, it was good to listen, but what the other one is doing is also important and necessary, making food for Jesus and the disciples. The wrong thing was, was having an attitude over one over the other, thinking that one was more important than the other. Both are important, but it is especially important to take time to learn, because that's how you actually grow better in whatever it is you're going to do for the Lord. Okay? So it's good to cook and clean and to serve disciples, but don't think that that's only supposed, the only thing you're supposed to do. You learn how to have a deeper theology about everything you do, even with the most simple of tasks, if you spend time learning and seeing the, the wonderful, beautiful, even the smallest details in Scripture about that. And I hope I drew some of that out to you today, that eating food is important to God. From that Scripture that Paul says, Whether, whatever you eat or drink, do it unto the Lord. And that means do it well. That's really really small stuff but you were supposed to have a mind that that's that deeply focused on God when you go to college it, when you put on your necktie men when you put on your clothes when you shave your face when you do your hair all of these things are for God and to glorify God our whole life is to be a living sacrifice pointed Godward with everything not just, I'm a missionary to Mexico. Not some super spiritual guru guy that's on the television. Like, if I could just arrive at his level of spirituality. Now, I'm telling you, every Christian has an important role and duty, and that's doing everything for the Lord. Every Christian has giftedness. 
But no matter what, all the commands in Scripture we are to be growing in as Christians. Okay? Establish a disciplined life. Start putting small disciplines into your life and realize that you are serving God in even the smallest of things. Practice to honor Him and glorify Him. And as you grow in faithfulness in the small things, what does Jesus say He will give you? Greater things. The small things are important because if the Master cannot trust you with organizing your life right, he can't trust you with greater things in the church. And we see that further expounded by Paul when he says, who can be an elder? What are the requirements of the elder? Is that is this idea of order, an orderly life, a noble ordered life, and that he has an organized life at home. How do we know we can entrust him with the church? Because he's faithful, organizing and ordering his home aright after God. Common sense, I know. <laughs> people, people that lead should be leaders in the microcosm of their life, in their small family unit. That they're already putting things into order for God. Loving their wife well, loving their children, teaching their children, being patient with them as they instruct their wives and their children. Don't look too hard, I'll, uh, I'll fail. Okay, so... Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tri tribulation, and being devoted to prayer. Let's look at rejoicing in hope. I'm going to read, read some of my notes to you guys. We are good soldiers of Christ Jesus when we are rejoicing in the hope he has given us. Okay, Paul urges us by the mercies of God to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, getting further down and away from that, He's saying we need to be those who are rejoicing in hope. And in the list of our commands or things that we're supposed to be about doing. What do you have hope in? Was there some chapters in Romans where he gave you future hope? Mm -hmm. Yes. And that is Romans... Romans 8. Yes. Yes. What does God say in Romans 8? We're going to get deeper, besides nothing the number. Right, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. In that section, he, Paul uses the term hope several times in Romans 8, and I think this is looking back to that. What are we having hope in, and what are we rejoicing in? That's the redemption of our body. That sin will be done away with, and that there will be a redemption of our body, and a future state, the future state, is a body that will not be able to sin. We will be made immortal in an immortal body that cannot fall into sin, which was the first state of our making, a body which could fall into sin. We will be made into a state which will never be able to fall. And that carries some serious theological implications. We won't go into them now. <clears throat> but... Rejoicing in hope. We rejoice in hope because we have a redemption of our body, the future hope of heaven, the promises of God we have to hope in. And in, in Romans 4, we have a character named from the Bible, Abraham, that we see promises that God made being fulfilled to that man. Yes? yes? So we have an example of God's faithful word coming about true 
and that in the future promises that he does give to us in the word, we can hope in because we have examples of God's promises coming true in the Bible. That God is faithful to secure and to make his word come about. And so we have something to resolutely rest in and to hold on to confidently. Persevering in tribulation. Life's not always easy, but even in hard times, Christians are called to love one another and persevere in these Christian commands and in Christian attitudes and attributes. Even when we go through trials, harsh persecution, tribulation, we must endure, persevere, with grace and prayer. Uh, one of the persons that I was reading and listened to talked about how it's interesting that after talking about tribulation to list off the next thing is prayer. I don't know if this is what Paul has in mind, but I think it is fitting to say, and maybe this is how you can remember the importance of it, but when you're going through persecution and you're down in the dumps, um, the thing you need most will be prayer. Prayer recognizes that God is sovereign and that you need to speak to him about the situation in your life and rest in him. And so when you go through tribulation and persecution, you need to look upward in prayer. Christians need prayer and Christians have been given prayer because tribulation is, is what's going to happen, persecution of some kind. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted to one degree or another from your own family people could shame you, you could feel shamed at work, people, whatever. There's different varying levels of persecution. In America, we don't have as much. It's more of you're socially awkward and people that maybe don't want to hang out with you that, as much. But there's, there's other forms of tribulation. I'm sure some people have lost jobs, even though it's hard legally to do that in various contexts. But it still probably happens. Persevering, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. One of the disciplines with reading, reading your Bible is listening to God. Praying to God is you talking to Him. I always emphasize hearing from God more than talking to Him. That's not necessary. You can pray a lot. But... Listening from God is what transforms us to be able to think more like Him. And God says in our prayer life, this is why I would emphasize reading over the prayer in this one sense. Our minds have to be transformed and renewed to the will of Jesus Christ. And when we pray, we need to know God's will more in the Bible so that we can pray more according to what God's will has revealed to us. He's already revealed a great deal of His will to us. We should be praying in accord with what Scripture says. And that means growing theologically, growing biblically in your prayer life. Okay, contributing to the needs of the saints. I didn't have this as much in the notes, but I want to talk about this. Contributing to the needs of the saints is especially focused at the saints, meaning Christians. Okay, there are other places in the text that talk about giving in other scenarios and situations. I try to list out the four major ones. So here, contributing to the needs of the saints means that you will have to live a disciplined, hard-working life 
and other places in Scripture, Paul commends the idea of working. Turn with me to Ephesians real quick. Ephesians 4.28 Paul gives this command to the churches. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, or do work, performing with his own hands what is good, work is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. It is a Christian virtue that God commends and Paul commends, is that you are not supposed to have a stealing type of life. That's where you are sucking the system yourself. You're sucking from the church rather than striving to give to the church. Are you a sucker branch or a giver branch? The goal is to be a giver branch. Obviously, some people that will be Christians will need to, to take care of. The extreme elderly, the, the greatly disabled, we should be caring to people who cannot work. We should. Those are the saints that need help especially. So saints, intentional saving and working, Ephesians 4.28, there's other passages in like Thessalonians, and 2 Thessalonians, Paul talks a lot about work and what the Thessalonians are supposed to be about. That's a good chapter that talks about work and church discipline. Okay, Barnabas, Acts, the end of Acts 4. He's a Levite, he gets saved, he sells a tract of land to give to the needs of the saints, it says. He sells a tract of land and gives to the needs of the saints. Barnabas becomes the pastor of Antioch right after this, just before the Jerusalem council. He becomes the, the lead preacher and teacher up in Antioch along with Paul. He actually goes and gets Paul and asks Paul to come with him and co-pastor with him at Antioch. Barnabas is a pastor who set the model. He sold something he didn't need anymore, went into ministry, preaching and teaching. And so he actually becomes this second group of people that we're supposed to take care of in the church, and that's pastors and missionaries. But it's interesting. Barnabas sold a tract of land to give to the needs of saints, and now he's probably going to be supported. When he goes out as a missionary with Paul, he get, they get some support, but not. And Paul and Barnabas, in their first couple of journeys, offered a model of, we worked hard during the day, so we didn't even steal anyone's bread, as a model of how people in the church are supposed to live. That You're supposed to work to give to other people's needs, not so you can take and receive. And people are going to try to abuse that in the church. But contributing to the needs of the saints is very important. Other people that you can contribute to are, an example is the Good Samaritan. That means anybody. Anybody who you see that gets, you, can, you remember the story. This guy is laying on the side of the road, beaten up naked, had everything stolen from him. And the Samaritan took passion on, compassion on that person and wanted to help them get their wounds healed up, get them in and in, get them sheltered, get them clothes, get them food, and help them get on their feet. Okay, that, you can do that for anyone. 
Now, the way for you to, to be able to do this means what? It means you have to be intentional about working so you can have money to do these things. And you can't do this apart from the discipline of hard work and then having the ethic to save it for these situations. And I actually believe the model that Jesus says is you should have enough money being saved up in the side for all four of these things, these general categories. Some people would think this is maybe too specific, but let me get specific. You should have money set aside to help anyone, believer or unbeliever, that you see is in desperate need and needs food, clothes, or shelter. This doesn't mean send all of your money overseas, because then you can't actually do this yourself. You can't be the one who establishes a relationship with that person that could result in the evangelistic thing yourself. Does that make sense? If you don't, you can go and support the Good Samaritan somewhere else, and that's good. Pastors and missionaries, other Christians, other places that are doing these kinds of things. But I think it is good, and I want to encourage all of you, put some money aside so that if God brings someone across your path like he did in the story, you are the one to meet that need and to establish that relationship. Have some money set aside for that. And have the desire to have money set aside for that yourself so that you can do that. Okay. And then there's just contributing to the needs of the saints. A lot of times the elders will help distribute funds to the deacons and people in need. It was the early church model and in scripture. Hospitality, if you read 2 John, hospitality means specifically the few places in scripture where the word hospitality is used. It means Christians that you don't know that aren't a part of your church. In the early church, there were Christians that were traveling around the Mediterranean, okay? And practicing hospitality meant that you probably wouldn't know this person, but this person would come and say to you, I'm of the Lord, okay? And then you're supposed to have a hospitable, sharing, contributing to the needs of the saints type of attitude toward them. These are people outside of your church. We see this. Paul gives Phoebe a commendation letter as she goes to the church in Rome, and this was actually common in ancient times, is that pastors would have letters for this Christian to carry if they were going to travel somewhere else so that they could show it to another church and know that this person was good in doctrine and good to go with their local church and that they were worthy of being supported if they had any need in the area. So this wasn't just a free-for-all. There was order to it, and there was a purpose. Somebody turn to 2 John and start reading in verse 7 for me. Why Christians did it that way. Why did Christians have such discrimination and would need letters to be carried around with each other in order to be shown hospitality? For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Keep going. All the way through 11. <clears throat> Look to yourself that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. If there come any to you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house. 
neither bid him Godspeed. For he that bids him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. There's going to be false teachers and false believers in the church, and it was already happening. A lot of them in the ancient, this during the time of the biblical record is Judaizers, people who would go around and still tell other people, Gentiles, that they needed to be circumcised or do certain laws of the Moses so that they can know for sure that they're saved. Okay, and there was, there was other forms of false teaching. This isn't, this isn't an exhaustive list by John, but it, it showed the ancient church that it was important. You can also read uh, Jude, and it talks about great warnings about doubting Christians that are very weak. It talks about, well, I'll get there later, actually. We'll get there later. It's in the notes. I'll cover down on that later. But showing hospitality to strangers, you have, you have to be discriminatory in the Christians you're showing hospitality to. You have to use discretion because it's important that these people not falsely use your hospitality but are actually propagators of false teaching. That's really bad. John says that if you show hospitality to that person, you participate in their what kind of deeds? Evil deeds. And then John says this too. Be careful not to do this because you will lose your reward. It's serious. It's not, it's not light. You can gain rewards and you can lose rewards in heaven as a believer. And I believe John is pointing out that you're going to have some loss. If you, if you don't use discernment, and if you don't strive to hold up the Bible faithfully and obediently as best you can, and follow God's parameters and ways, you won't have reward in that area. You'll have loss. And that's not good. It's not a good example either to others. So why, why should we do this? We should do it so our kids know how to do this. An example, our high degree of Christianity. We want the best for our children, right? You, you want the best for your children on this earth and in heaven? Do you want the master to say, well done to your children one day if they are disciples and saved? So you should model healthy discipleship learning and being a good disciple yourself and so you can teach them what the Bible says with every detail as best you can to get about it. To get about understanding the details of the text, of the Bible, and obeying Jesus with the parameters and things that the authors have put in place for us to obey in. Okay, so it's not a free-for-all. Hospitality is not a free-for-all. People can use hospitality, meaning in something very similar in an evangelistic way, having strangers into your house, that's another method. But in all, all of these things, contributing to the needs, specifically the needs of the saints in this passage, you have to be intentional about working and having money to be able to do these things. And so I'm I just encouraging you in that. That's the principle there. In the notes, I gave an example of my life, how Elizabeth and I got to practice hospitality to a stranger that was a Christian. You guys want to hear that story real quick? This is just an example of what it may look like. Several years ago, my wife and I had an opportunity to host with Presbyterian wife, Presbyterian pastor, and his wife. She is a Presbyterian wife. 
<laughs> Six children in our Rochester home. <clears throat> Though a chain, uh, through a chain of phone calls, my previous pastor in northern Minnesota, um, who was contacted by one of their parishioners that knew him from when they went through Bible college, called him. He, I just moved down to Rochester. They hit a deer down there. And that morning, I called my new pastor down there in Rochester because I only had a small vehicle. They had six children, so there was eight of them total. I needed a large van with seat belts to be legal. It's good to be legal, guys. <laughs> Strive to be legal. They drive the speed limit. South Dakota doesn't have that. <laughs> or at least just very high ones. Okay, so, that was a South Dakota joke, come on. That's good, though. All right. So anyway, through this chain of phone calls, I went to the place that had their van where it was totaled at this uh, mechanic shop and got them with this van that uh, the pastor at our church supplied for me to help them. We had them over, they ate food, raided the fridge, slept on the couches, got showers, and they spent basically the whole day at our house while the husband and wife tried to figure out stuff with insurance and making phone calls and working through it. And Elizabeth and I just tried to kind of wash the kids, do food, wash towels, get stuff, because there's a whole posse of them. <laughs> Some people have more. The Koskins know what having lots of kids is like. So that's, that's hospitality. And you can look to the story of Abraham and Sarah and others about examples of, of having people that are of the Lord into your home and welcoming them and using your resources, working hard so you have resources to share with people who are of the Lord. Though, though, uh, and so getting back to my story about Second John here, how could I know that it was okay to have this Presbyterian pastor over? Him and I are doctrinally different on some things. Infant, infant baptism. Is that, is that something salvific? No, it's not, it's not an area to, to not practice hospitality over. It might be for somebody else who feels that way. That's fine, I guess. You'll have to use where your conscience is at, the maturity level that you are at, practice your hospitality with where you are at, okay? With your understanding of doctrine. And there's a few other doctrines that we would differ with. Um, but he was of the, a conservative Presbyterian church that preaches and teaches faithfully, and they believe in sanctification, that the saints should be pursuing holiness. And so for, the, for me, those two things were essential and good enough to practice hospitality with him and his family. <clears throat> yes? You're confusing me a little bit. So those ideas were hinges on which you decided whether to have them over or not? In accord with Second John, yes. Some people... So if they would have been Mormon, you wouldn't have had them over. When people come to you in the name of... Okay, so this is where hospitality differs. The other thing about hospitality in the ancient times, according to the text, is that a lot of times it would happen over longer periods of time. Okay? And so sometimes these categories, we can think, bleed in and out of each other because 
the practices are similar. However, there are different biblical parameters for each one. But having people over in your home and sharing food is like the same for all of those areas. Yes? Or sharing money, sharing food, giving. Those things would happen the same in all these different categories. So you're just saying you didn't see that as an evangelistic opportunity, that you still would have had them over and perhaps shared the gospel with them. Yes. Caring for them. But if it, if, okay, say that they were Mormons, it would be evangelistic for me. This wouldn't be a, this wouldn't be hospitality. This would be kind of Christian charity in my mind. Yes. So, Second John, John 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive them into your house or give them any greeting. So, I... The, some people take this passage. If there's a Jehovah's Witness who knocks on your door, you can't let them in your house. And I think that Lisa touched on that issue kind of as well. Can you help us navigate like the nitty gritty of verse 10? Um, so take, take for example the Jehovah's Witness. Do you think that this prevents us from having a Jehovah's Witness step in our house? No. The greeting would be a Christian embracing. Okay? We are in fellowship. Mm -hmm. So Chance brings out an important detail, Pastor Chance. The greeting is that we're the right hand of fellowship is being extended like we're all okay and hunky-dory. What needs to happen, the difference is, Lisa, Pastor Chance, and for everyone else, is that when you understand that there is an extreme doctrinal difference <coughs> over the person of Christ, the Trinity, justification by faith, and that I believe also... If people are libertarians and not living a sanctified life, you should not be supporting them either. Because there are a lot of people who quote paying Christianity that do not believe that they are in the dispensation of living holy and obediently. I don't believe you should support them either. It is not okay to be different on different governments. And you need to use that time. If you are going to show charity to these people, you need to let them know if they're going to try to evangelize you, one, you need to be careful with these conversations in front of your kids, depending on age level. So there's a lot of discretion that needs to be used. Does that make sense? Another thing is that you need to evangelize them, and if it's getting heated, obviously you're not going to keep them in their home. You know, you have to use wisdom with your children and protecting your house, protecting your wife. If your wife or your husband is, uh, husbands should be the leaders in their home, so I don't know if this would make sense, but... If your spouse is a weak Christian, I wouldn't suggest hosting somebody who's really got their, is committed to heresy doctrine into your home where they could confuse your spouse more, potentially. Yes. Jake, in your notes you have, uh, you must be cautious and use wisdom in your opening of your home. If you don't, if, yeah, you do not have to be open and giving if you are unsure of the character of the people you are trying to help, uh, you can offer to pay for a room in a hotel, deliver some food, and other options. Yes. Yeah, do not expose yourself, your wife, or your children to those who, have, who could cause you harm or go into sinfulness. 
sinfulness or wrong doctrine. That would, that would be unwise. Okay? A lot of people probably think that they're mature. But man, let me tell you, if you have a really strong, well-taught Jehovah's Witness or Mormon, they could come in, even throw some Greek or Hebrew words out at you and get you condensed. So you've got to be careful, okay? And if you think you're maybe too weak to evangelize them, don't. I would encourage you not to try that, okay? But maybe it's an area where you realize you need to grow and be built up in doctrine. That's if you read 1 John, there's sages, there's young men that are being built up in doctrine, and then there's the immature or the young that are infant in Christ. Get up there in your maturity in the Word so you can handle things with greater discretion, wisdom, and understanding from the Word. We've, re we've run out of time now. So I don't have to. I, I don't have time to go into the next four pages of my notes. <laughs> we made it through two. We covered down on a little bit, but I would encourage you to read some of that section, which is about church discipline. I used another example from my life, and some other things about contending for the faith, and that when we do all these commands, essentially, it's not just a free for all or any way that I think about it. You have to go about these things according to Scripture. Okay, you want to do these things according to Scripture and understand them, the details around them, as you grow in acting upon them. I hope that helps and makes sense. Jacob? Yes. Uh, excuse me. Diana and I are talking about having a chili soup Sunday school gathering. gathering. Yes, in about two weeks, like March 1st. So uh, we'll get more information out. So yes. that's, that's what we'll try. We'll check the calendar. Thank you. And thank you, Pastor Chance, for pointing out that important detail about what the greeting means. That's really important. That's an important detail that shows the parameters. So, thank you. We also need to point out that that clean your room is a military command, not a biblical one. No, I talked. <laughs> yeah, military people. Like I said, whether whether you are eating or drinking, do unto the Lord. I don't eat or drink in my room. <laughs> Good luck. I'm gonna I'm gonna rebuke you only two more times. I'm gonna call on the church to cast her out. It does say that verse though. Whatever you do. <laughs> yes. And if, if you, okay, if you want an example of order and cleanliness, look at the temple. Was God a disorderly, unorganized God who wanted His room to be in a mess? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> 